Thank you, joyful sound. So I was kidding about them being here every week. If you, this is your first Sunday, they are just here on special. In fact, our worship leader for this summer has been Avery Mills, and Avery is here somewhere. Did you move? I thought you were back there somewhere. Avery, stand up. And our staff on the back row, if you played in the worship team, y'all stand up. You're going to have to crook your neck back to see them. And the only other person I know that didn't get introduced today was Steve Krause, Dr. Steve Krause, who's been at North Greenville University for 30 years, 32 years. And uh, he and I go way back. We've known each other for most, uh, before that, I knew you before you went to North Greenville University. So thank you, Steve, for being here. Thank you for bringing Joyful Sound with you. Will you come back sometime? I got the thumbs up. Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. I've been preaching through Matthew this summer, and we're coming to a turning point in the ministry of Christ. And he's about to ask the disciples a very important question. It's really going to change the trajectory from this point forward. But let me start with the last verse of our passage. I want to read Matthew 16, verse 24 first, and then bring us back to the passage for today. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When Jesus called his disciples, he called them from the lakeside. Most of them were from the Sea of Galilee. And he said, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, things are about to change. The expectations that are about to be put on them and the question they're about to answer is going to change their perspective. They finally get that he's the Son of God. They finally get that there's something totally unique about him. And Jesus is about to ask a very important question. So let me read the first part of chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ the son of the living God. Caesarea Philippi used to be called Panius because it was named after the Greek god Pan, which basically meant all gods. And I want to show you some pictures from Caesarea Philippi today. This is a picture I took of kind of this is what it looked like back in its heyday. And then the next picture shows you what it looks like today. There's still those niches there. There's still caves. There's still places where idols were erected. In fact, the next picture shows you writing that was carved into the stone at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's about as far north. Jesus went to Tyre, so that's about as far away as he ever got from Jerusalem. But this is equal to that, Caesarea Philippi. So they come into that district. And so go back to the second picture, Casey. Can you go to the second picture? She's crying. So that picture there... That's where Jesus asked the question. The disciples have been looking at all these temples to Diana and all of these Greek mythology gods. And they're saying, well, that's the god Pan and all the gods that would have been worshipped and revered in Caesarea Philippi. And so he asked him the question, who do people say that I am? 
you know these guys, what people say about them. Who do people say the Son of Man is? That was a phrase that Jesus referred to himself 88 times in the Gospels. The Son of Man. It, it highlighted his humanity, but we re- recognize Jesus was fully God and fully man for 33 years approximately on earth. And so he asked the question, who do people say that I am? Why is it that we take something unique and have to use common phrases for it? Have you ever been mistaken? Has your identity ever been mistaken? I'm not asking if it's ever been stolen. Have you ever had somebody think you're somebody else? It's happened to me several times. The thing I thought about this year, this week as I was preparing this message was, the first year of our marriage, we lived in the upstate in Greenville, South Carolina. I worked in Easley. And I was in an Ingalls grocery store, and this little three-year-old kid came up, grabbed my leg, and said, Daddy! I thought, I don't think so. Somebody's got some splaining to do. So I don't know what it was about my leg or the pants I was wearing or the shoes I had on, but that's all he looked at. When he finally looked up at me, he realized, I got a hold of the wrong guy. And so that's kind of what Jesus is doing. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples had heard them say things like, well, some say you're John the Baptist. In fact, Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. And it scared him to death. Why? Because he had had John the Baptist beheaded. In fact, John the Baptist himself in Matthew 11, verses 2 through 3, while he was in prison, heard of the works of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one or or should we look for someone else? Even John the Baptist was questioning, Okay, we're seeing what you're doing. We're hearing the miracles. But are you the coming Messiah or are we looking for somebody else? Some say you're Elijah. Probably to the Jew, Elijah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Great prophet. Went up in front of 450 false prophets of Baal. You remember the story? Mount Carmel. Not Mount Carmel, but Mount Carmel. Carmel is a mountain in Israel. Caramel is a delicious dessert. But at Mount Carmel, he said, prove that your God is the God. And so they created a sacrifice and put wood on it. He said, call down fire out of heaven. And it said they cried out all day, beat their chest, cut their arms. And Elijah said, maybe you need to cry a little louder. Maybe your God's gone to sleep. Maybe he's on a trip. And you know the story. They couldn't call down fire out of heaven, but John the ba- or Elijah did. So great prophet of God. So to say that Jesus reminded them of Elijah was not a bad thing, but it wasn't the thing. It wasn't the full, complete information. Some say you're Jeremiah. They call Jeremiah the weeping prophet, and certainly Jesus wept over the sin of Israel. Or one of the other prophets. So they're taking something totally unique, which was Jesus, God among us, God Emmanuel, and they're saying, well, he reminds us a little bit of Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Why is it we do that? It's because we're taking something unique and trying to put handles on it, trying to make it make sense to us. Why is it that every freaky meat in the grocery store tastes like chicken? You go to the buffet and they have frog legs on the buffet. Somebody says, you need to try the frog legs. What do they taste like? Chicken. I lived in a t- I grew up in Macon, Georgia. We had a drive through restaurant in the 70s, literally, that served fast food rabbit. And I asked, what does it taste like? What did they say? Chicken. I had a kid in my youth group that went off and joined the Army Rangers. And one of the things he had to do was jump out of an airplane and survive for several days before they picked him up. And I said, what did you do? He said, how would you live? He said, I-, I killed a snake and ate it. I said, what did it taste like? 
chicken. I don't know about you, but if I want to eat something that tastes like chicken, I'll just eat chicken. I don't have to put a frog in a wheelchair or eat a little bunny foo-foo or get in the snake handling. We're not that kind of church. But that's kind of what they did with Jesus. They're looking at God among us, and they're using common phrases to describe him. But the question gets more pointed when he says, but who do you say that I am? So who do they say the Son of Man is? Well, we can sit back all, all we want to and talk about what other people think. But who do you think I am? In other words, I've been with you for two and a half months approximately. You've watched me heal people. You've heard me teach. You've seen me feed 5,000, then 4,000. You've seen me calm the storm. You've seen me walk on water. What about you? And he doesn't say, well, who do you say the Son of Man is? He says, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up. And let's give Peter credit, because most of the time when Peter speaks up, in fact, later in this passage, he's going to blow it again. Most of the time, Peter opens his mouth and inserts both feet. I don't know how he does that. But Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. It literally means the Messiah. You're the one prophesied of in the Old Testament. You're the one who has come among us as God in the flesh. You are Messiah, Son of the living God. And they're standing at niches and caves and inscriptions in Caesarea Philippi where they are worshiping all these other gods who were dead. Those gods never lived. They were mythologies. And so Simon Peter gets it right. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. The gods the Greeks worshipped were not alive. They were dead. So that's the statement of Peter. Let's look at the statement of Jesus following along verses 17 through 20. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples, that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So Peter gets it right, and Jesus says, blessed are you, happy, fortunate, well off. Bingo, Peter, you got it right. But he used his given name, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. P Peter, it's not because you've seen me do things. It's because God has quickened your heart and planted within your heart the knowledge of who I am. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. My Father in heaven has revealed that to you. Who do you say Jesus is? I'm going to ask that question again toward the end of the message, but I want you all to be thinking about it. And I don't just mean today on Sunday with your mouth, but if I followed you around, who would you say Jesus is? What if I asked one of your best friends, who does she say Jesus is? What if I went to school with you? What if I went to work with you? What if I went to your neighborhood, into your home, and asked the question, who does he say Jesus is? Would I get a blank stare? Would I get, well, we never talk about Jesus? Would I say, he would say Jesus is the Son of God. He would say, or she would say, Jesus is my Savior. He's the Lord. Well, blessed are you if you're saying that. And Jesus says, you are Peter. He uses the word Petros, which means a piece of the rock. And upon this rock, Petra, the outcropping of rock, same word that he used back when we were talking about the man who built his house on the rock instead of on the sand. 
So he's not calling Peter the rock the church is going to be built on. He's calling Peter a part of it. You're, you're a rock, Peter. You're a piece of rock. And upon the profession of your faith, this is how I will build my church. And I want you to see the significance of him building the church. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. It means called out ones. Now, I know when we say, are you going to church Sunday, you're thinking of a building that has a steeple on top of it. I get it. I understand that. But that's not what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the called out ones. If you're a child of God, you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're part of his church. And a few things I want you to see about that. First of all, Jesus is the foundation of the church. Not Peter, not you, not somebody else. Jesus is the foundation of the church. He's the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. And he's the one doing the building. Isn't that great? Most powerful thing happening on planet earth right now. Jesus is building his church. He promised he would. And he's coming back to call his church to himself for all of eternity. So Jesus is doing the work. Human effort produces human results. There's some people feel like, well, I'm building a church. Well, human effort gets human results. Divine effort gets divine results. We are gathering with Jesus to be a part of him building his church. It's not we that do it. He does it. Take comfort in that. Third, it's his church. He said, I will build my church. It's not your church. And I get it sometimes we'll drive by and we're introducing somebody to our town. Well, that's my church. Well, that's a building where you worship God, but it's his church. And it's bigger than one building. I don't care how big the building is. He'll build his church. And he takes it personally when folks attack the church. I'm not talking about when folks attack a building. I'm talking about when folks attack you. He takes it personally. Because if you're a child of God, you're joining heir with Christ, you're seated with him in the heavenly places, he takes it personally. You're his brother, you're his sister. And last, his church is protected. He said the gates of Hades, literally the gates of death, shall not prevail against it, will not overpower it. Death has no power over Jesus. He rose from the dead. Death has no power over his church. He will build his church until the day he comes and calls his church to himself. There's coming a day when God the Father is going to look at God the Son and say, go claim your bride. That's the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And he says, I'm going to give you authority. He's talking to Peter as a spokesman until Acts chapter 10. Peter is the spokesman of the church in the first century until we're introduced to the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm giving you authority to bind things on earth. I'm giving you authority to loose things on earth. But there are things already bound and loosed in heaven. So he's given Peter authority. And then he does this unusual thing. He warns his disciples that they would tell no one. That's not the first time he said that. Remember the leper? Jesus heals the leper, tells him to go to the priest and, and let the priest prove that he's been healed. But he said, don't tell anybody. What did the leper do? Told everybody. Well, he's told the disciples, don't tell anybody, and I've got two reasons for that. Number one, it wasn't the time. Jesus distanced himself from the crowds because they were ready to bring out the white horse and the crown and put him on the back, and they were ready for him to go to Jerusalem and defeat the Romans. It wasn't time for that. The day's coming when Jesus is going to ride a white horse. It hadn't happened yet. It wasn't the time. It also wasn't what they expected. They didn't expect a suffering servant. That's going to become real obvious in the next point. 
They expected the white horse and the crown, but it wasn't time for that yet. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus says, don't tell people, what do they do? They told them. Then when Jesus gives the great commission, the great com- commission, and he says, go into all the world, baptizing, teaching, we don't do it. I don't know if we need to go backwards or reverse psychology. Don't anybody tell anybody about Jesus this week. Well, I'll show that preacher. I'm going to tell everybody I meet about Jesus. Well, I'm not going to use reverse psychology on you. Listen, what Jesus has done in our life, it's time that we tell the story. So that's the statement of Jesus. I'm going to close with the plan of God. And this is awesome. Verses 24 through 21 through 24. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but on man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. From that time. We've seen Jesus kind of not dealing with the crowds anymore. Jesus is really not dealing, for the most part, with the religious leaders anymore. He's dealing one on 12 with his disciples. And he realizes, I've got a few months left to impart knowledge and wisdom to these men. And I'm going to lose one of them. He knew Jesus was going to betray him. But he said, I must go to Jerusalem. It was necessary. If you and I knew what Jesus knew, we wouldn't go anywhere near Jerusalem. Because he knew what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. I must go. It's a divine imperative. Absolutely necessary. I must go to Jerusalem. Well, that didn't bother the disciples. They'd been to Jerusalem. They'd been with Jesus to Jerusalem. But the second one bothered him. I will suffer many things. Jesus is going to experience suffering at the hands of the religious elite. The Sanhedrin were going to cause him to suffer. And oh, by the way, I'm going to be killed. I think that's where the ears shut off. Because they didn't hear the fourth thing he said. And I will rise from the dead on the third day. And Peter, the same Peter who had just declared you are Christ, the son of the living God, looks at Jesus, interrupts him. Come here a minute. It ain't going down that way. That's not the way we've got this thing planned. You're not going to Jerusalem. We'll keep you away from Jerusalem. And whatever, by the mercy of God, you're not going to be put to death. What does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Was Peter Satan? No. The same Peter who had confessed the truth about Jesus was the one who's now being used by the devil to do what the devil's been trying to do the whole time Jesus was on earth. Trying to thwart the purpose of God. But the plan of God was that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem Jesus was going to be going to suffer. He was going to die on the cross, but he was going to raise from the dead. So Peter rebukes Jesus. And one of the phrases that interests me, forbid it, Lord. God forbid it, Lord. The word Lord means supreme in authority. Was, was Peter acknowledging Jesus as supreme in authority at that moment? No, Peter's saying, I got a better idea. I'll call you Lord, but I'm going to ask you to do things my way. This shall never happen. And Jesus turns and says, get thee behind me because you're a stumbling block 
You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on man's interests. Peter was placing his will above God's will. But I've got to give Peter credit. Peter ended up writing First and Second Peter. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter preaching. Day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus, who, Peter, who didn't get it in Caesarea Philippi, he got it finally. And then we come to the great statement of Jesus. If anyone wishes to come after me, if you're going to follow me from now on, so far, disciples, it's just been, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. But they need to understand, they're going to identify with Christ's suffering, with his death, and ultimately with his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, first thing you've got to do is deny yourself. Literally, that word means to completely disown. What's he saying? He's saying you have left the old man behind. The things that used to occupy your time, your attention, your efforts, your treasure, you've got to deny that. In fact, that was the problem the rich young ruler had. Remember the rich young ruler? Comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, everything the man had, he had inherited. He thought, I'm going to see how I inherit eternal life. Jesus told him, and it said he went away from him sad. The only person I read in Scripture that left Jesus sad was the rich young ruler. How are we doing on denying ourselves? When you hold on to something, why, we, why do we hold on to something that's being corrupted? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 says that the flesh is being corrupted. It's still in the process of being corrupted. You come to faith in Christ, he started a new thing within you. He's recreating you from the inside out. Don't hold on to the stuff of the flesh. Take up your cross. So you must deny yourself. Take up your cross. That word doesn't mean as much to us as it did them. They had seen people carrying their cross. It meant they were being sentenced to death. It means they're walking that road to Calvary. It's where Jesus would ultimately go. So take up your cross. It doesn't mean that you've got a bad in-law. Well, that's my cross to bear, I guess. No, it means you've denied yourself. It means that you're willing to pay any price to follow Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. There's no crossless obedience to Christ. And then last, follow me. You've got to deny yourself first. You've got to take up your cross. And then follow me. There's comfort in the words of Jesus, follow me. But I wonder if we've made invitations too easy in the church. If we skip over deny yourself and take up your cross and we just get to follow me, we have invitations where people flood the aisles. I wonder how many of them recognize what they're committing to. How many of them have truly said, I'm turning from my old life. I don't want to play there anymore. I don't want that stuff. It didn't bring me satisfaction. It didn't make me happy. And it sure didn't give me eternal life. So we skipped the first two and made invitations too easy. So how do you know you're following Jesus? I'm going to close with this. How do you know you're following Jesus? First, you're getting closer to Jesus. The cool thing about following someone is the closer you are to them, the easier it is to follow. 
You ever had somebody say, all right, we're going to this restaurant over here in Merle's Inlet, follow me, and they forget you're following them? The light turns yellow and they speed up to make it through and you're stuck at the red light going, thank goodness for cell phones. So you know you're following Jesus if you're getting closer to Jesus. You also know you're following Jesus if you're experiencing what he experienced, opposition. Jesus faced opposition from religious people. If you live the authentic Christian life, you'll face opposition, and sometimes it's from church people. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Some of the most miserable people I've ever met are in church. And it's almost like they feel like they're important by God. I'm miserable, and I'm going to make everybody else miserable. Where's the joy of the Lord? Number three, you finally realize it's not about you. Number four, and these last two are important. You can tell it in your prayer life. You'll know you're following Jesus when your prayer life is not all about your needs. But it's about worshiping him. It's about thanking him. It's about praising him. It's about thinking of others before yourself. So you know you're following Jesus by looking at your prayer life. If, if your prayer life is gimme, 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 you know what that looks like? A two-year-old. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And what do you do if you don't get what you ask for? You cry. And some folks who've come to faith in Christ have never grown up out of infancy. The last thing, the last way you know you're following Jesus, you'll tell it in your worship. You'll tell it in your worship. I watch people during the music, and music, we talked about worship a few weeks ago. Music's not the only form of worship. There are some people that are determined, I ain't singing. It's not manly. Tell it in your worship. Why? Because you realize who God is and you recognize he is worthy of all praise. And so you sing. You don't care about who hears you. I've always said, if you sit near me, I don't sing good. Just sing louder. Drown me out. But you ought to look forward to coming to worship. You ought to look forward to every day worshiping a God who's worthy of our worship. So Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? I'm asking you that question as we close. By your life, by your actions, who is Jesus? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Messiah? Is he Lord of your life? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. And God, thank you for the conviction that comes when we ask the question, who do I say that Jesus is? Lord, I pray that by our lives, we're demonstrating who Christ is. Because if he's the most important thing in our life, everybody's going to know it. By the way we live and the way we talk, they'll know it. So help us follow you. Help us deny ourselves. Show us that there's places we haven't denied ourselves. Show us that there's part of our past we're still clinging to, with a death grip. Help us take up our cross. Help us sacrificially live for you. And help us follow you. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to enter, uh, announce our offering total. It's the bottom one. The Lord has given us today $145,240.50. And
So where's Steve? Steve's going to lead us as we sing to God be the glory. You're already, I mean, you're on top of it. So don't go anywhere. After we sing this, I'm going to give us instructions.